Welcome to the ABA and PT podcast, where I interview scientists and practitioners from the world of precision teaching and behaviour analysis and share their journeys of how they found their way to the science of behaviour, as well as their discoveries through the use of the standard acceleration chart. I'm Mandy Mason, a scientist practitioner in Perth, Australia, impacted by my daughter with autism, who caused me to knock on enough doors to find my way to this extraordinary field. And I'm on a journey to share how precision teaching and the use of the standard acceleration chart can change the world and make it a better place to live. So I've set myself a lofty goal, to seek out the giants in the field of precision teaching and ABA, share their journeys and discoveries, and influence the work of practitioners who want to be profoundly impactful with their clients and to have the heart to chart. Welcome to the ABA and PT podcast. It's been a long time between drinks or between podcasts, I should say. Sorry for those of you that were expecting me to be back right after episode 11. I was expecting that too. I took a vacation and competed in a World Masters Athletics event, then got home, moved house, took over a cafe, and all in all, it just got a little hectic. However, I'm back and I'm back with a profoundly impactful guest. So impactful, the podcast had to go across two episodes. And when you talk about legends, well, this guest is top of the heap, A number one. Are you ready to go all in with Patrick McGreevy? Old Nick named him Brother Pat and he and most of his PD colleagues, the long-timers as he calls them, continue to call him that. Brother Pat is the reason I found my way to precision teaching. He was a standout lecturer when I studied at FIT and his passion and energy for the chart were contagious. His lectures on why not to use percent correct as a measure of behaviour should be compulsory for every behaviour analyst. I then got to see him speak at a clinic in Indiana when my daughter was enrolled and watched him work with the kids he loves so much, the kids that need the best and the most precise measurement, the ones that everyone else has given up on. It is those kids that Brother Pat has dedicated his life to and the work that he loves so much. This interview went across two nights, both until midnight my time, but I still had a thousand questions I wanted to ask. And what's phenomenal about Brother Pat is despite his five-year, decade experience in this field, I never once felt shy to ask him a question. He talks at length about his relationship with Og, and I found myself reaching for tissues on more than one occasion for his passion for Og's work and his legacy, and it's still very difficult for him to talk about Og without emotion. He reveals his personal journey of how he has dealt with some of the skills he teaches to his kids and the use of latency and duration as measures on the chart. He also tells a treasure of a story of how Jabba got to be called Jabba and what Og and B.F. Skinner wanted to call it. Brother Pat received his BS and MA degrees in psychology and special ed, respectively, from the University of Iowa. He was a special education teacher for eight years, working with children and young adults with moderate to severe developmental disabilities. He received his PhD in education from Kansas University under Og, of course, and he served on the faculties of many universities, including where I met him or first found out about him, the Florida Institute of Technology. He is the author of Teaching and Learning in Plain English, an Introduction to Precision Teaching, and the founder and first editor of the Journal of Precision Teaching and Standard Acceleration Charting. He's the author of 10 journal articles and a book chapter on teaching verbal behaviour. And for the past 30 years, he has provided consultations for children and adults with developmental disabilities in school districts, residential programs and hospitals specialising in the simultaneous management of aggressive and self-injurious behaviour and the teaching of communication and language skills to individuals with limited repertoires, and so much more. He's the recipient of the Ogden R. Lindsley Lifetime Achievement Award of the Standard Acceleration Society. I am absolutely delighted to bring you Brother Pat. It is my absolute honour today to introduce Dr. Patrick McGreevy, who a lot of you will already know of, 
but I was very fortunate to have his series of lectures through Florida Tech and then later got to hear him speak in person and saw him in Indiana at an institution or a school called Baca. And uh, I was just overwhelmed at that time by your passion and your exhilaration and enthusiasm for the chart. And I think a lot of us came away from those presentations just really motivated and I went straight out and bought your book. And that was really the start of my journey into PT. So I just could not be more delighted than to welcome you to the podcast today. Everybody's been telling me to get you on, but you're the busiest man on the planet. We'll talk about what you're doing at the moment and what keeps you busy at the moment. But I would love to hear how you first found your way, I guess, to teaching and, you know, whether you had any people or mentors that influenced you early on that that led you to this field. How did it all start? It all started, I was a, I was an undergraduate psychology student at the University of Iowa. Yeah. After, after having a history in a Catholic seminary for several years. And then when I left and I decided I, you know, I had to get back to school, I ended up at the University of Iowa in psychology pretty much because I really didn't know where else to go or what else to do, but it seemed interesting. And one afternoon, one of my fellow students said that he was going over to the University of Iowa Hospital School and to volunteer. And in those days, he called them the Mongi kids. Now, he didn't mean it in a disrespectful way, but it was short for mongoloid yeah. or Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And he said that he was going over to volunteer and would I like to come along? And so I did. Yeah. And I got hooked. I got hooked that very day. Wow. And I said, and I, because I was frustrated enough with psychology, because I saw psychology as a way to assess, but not as a way to teach. Psychology didn't offer anything in terms of teaching. So, and I was learning how to give Wexlers and Stanford Binet IQ tests and stuff, which I couldn't be less interested in. What did you see and, uh, the kids that really struck you? You know, what, what did you observe at the hospital? I first thought of the kids in, in, in like, I thought of them, this is a laboratory where you could learn about learning. Yeah. Because these were the severe kids. They were the kids that weren't impacted by some of the other social issues that higher functioning kids are impacted by. I mean, these kids were like, 13 and 14 year old kids with the interest of a four year old. Yeah. That had the interest similar to typically developing four year olds. And, and I thought to myself, boy, this would be a good place to learn about how children learn. And it, you know, and so I fell in love with it. And then uh, I went. What program were they teaching? Just from what year would have this been? This would have been 1967. And what was the state of behavior analysis then in 67? I didn't even know what behavior analysis was. <laughs> yeah. And the psychology department didn't even teach that at all. It yeah. wasn't even taught. There wasn't even anything about it. And I learned about behavior analysis when I first went to see a lecture of Ogden Lindsley's. And that was after 
I had already gotten out of psychology, got into special ed, and had a master's degree in special education. Wow. Okay. So you ended up from everything you observed sort of at the Iowa hospital, decided you wanted to change to teaching, to special education? Yeah. So what mm-hmm. happened? And you did that? When did and, you do that? And I wanted the kids that were the more severely impaired kids. Yeah. Not, not the kids that were... I didn't. I wasn't particularly interested in in teaching children to read. That didn't interest yeah. me. Yeah. Um, I was more interested in teaching them daily living skills. The kids that, you know, that couldn't communicate. The kids that couldn't toilet properly. The children that didn't know how to feed themselves. And and the children who had orthopedic impairments. Those were the kids that really interested me. Yeah. And then when I met Ogden, I saw I was already I had already read science and human behavior. So I was already leaning in a behavioral direction. In fact, I just devoured science and human behavior. And and how did you find out about it? How did you find out about skin? How did that come in? Uh, a psychologist friend of mine, when I was in my first teaching job, he and I used to commute and he was getting very interested in behavior analysis, which in those days, most people called behavior modification. Yeah. The application anyway. And then I just devoured science and human behavior. And then he and I would, he and I would commute back and forth. So one week I would drive and one week he would drive because it was about a 40 mile drive. And what we would do is we would read a chapter of science and human behavior. And then it would be like a study group in the car. Yeah, fantastic. So we would go back and forth with questions and thoughts and discussions. And and those were my first great discussions. And then after I had been teaching for several years, I uh, and realizing that I couldn't teach anybody anything, I really didn't know how to teach. My master's program hadn't taught me how to teach at all. It had it had focused on higher functioning kids. In those days the term was Educable, mentally retarded. Those were kids with IQs in the 70s. Yeah. And upper 60s and whatever that means. It, it had prepared me to teach reading and math, but I didn't want to teach that. Yeah. That didn't interest me. And I was interested in the more severe kids. So that's where I went. And as I got into precision teaching later, I went in Ogden and then I wrote, I, I went to a couple of his sessions traveled some distances to get there. And then I decided I would write him a letter and ask him if he would be interested in somebody as a doctoral student. So I did. And I didn't hear from him for about a year. Right. And on the Saturday before Easter, I can remember it that distinctly. The Saturday before Easter in 1972, I picked up the phone and it was Ogden Lindsley on the other end. Wow. and I darn near swallowed the phone. <laughs> and I, I was so damn nervous. And he kept me on the phone for almost two hours. Oh. And I remember I had had some coffee before he called. <laughs> and I had a phone that had this 20-foot cord. <laughs> because I had to go to the bathroom several times <laughs> during the call. Because I'd had so much coffee and I couldn't, I didn't want to put the phone down. I, I wasn't stopping this conversation. I, I, so I ended up using the restroom two or three times while I had him on the phone. 
Because I didn't want to put the phone down. You're going to miss a word. I didn't want to miss a word. So finally, he he said, would you like to come to, to uh, Kansas City and, and interview? And I said, sure. How soon do you how soon do you want me? He said, how about next week? I said, fine, I'll be there. <laughs> so I packed up. I was yeah. single in those days and I packed up all my stuff and I drove to Kansas City. And then I spent a whole weekend with him. And then two months later, I became his doctoral student. Wow. And um, and everything changed. And yeah. then I began to realize more and more who he was and what his history was. Because I had just heard him talk about charting, standard charting mostly. But then I realized, my God, he was he was the he was the he was the first human operant conditioning laboratory anywhere ever was him. Yeah. He took Skinner's work. And the difference between his work and Skinner's work was largely that one were animals and the other were people. Yeah. And right in with the schizophrenic individuals because they wouldn't let us have any access to anybody else. Everybody was so suspicious of behavior analysis. That's where I was. And I spent two years being his student. And then I went off to... uh, And and what was the title of your PhD? Well, you mean what subject matter was it in? It was in education. Yeah, education. It was in education. Yeah. In those days, uh, Kansas was experimenting. The University of Kansas was experimenting with a way to do a dissertation so that you could have published articles. So they let us do three articles that were all related. And so my dissertation is 60 or 70 words in the title, but that's because they're, they're essentially three articles. Three articles, yeah. It's a long dissertation, but I mean, the, that, the dissertation isn't long. The title of it's long. Yeah, right. And uh, so it, it involved using some one-minute timings to do some assessments and then to go into classrooms and teach kids and to chart their progress and you do it all on standard charts. And who else was doing their PhD when you were with Og? There were two other people, but they both dropped out and went home. Really? Wow. See. So for a while, I was the only one. Full attention. At that moment. One ended up going, one ended up quitting, and I'm not sure where Pete ended up. But Linda ended up going to, to a, a law school. She decided that she was right. more interested in the legal part. So she went to law school. And then I was the only one there for a little while. And then about a year or so after I left, we finished my time on campus. That's when Abigail became his next doctoral student. Right. She was right, right after me now. Now, Abigail was before me in the sense of charting. She had been charting a bunch of years before me. So in one sense, she's before me and after me. She's before me in the sense of charting. She's after me in the sense of being a student. (laughs) And what was it like to be a student of Oaks? Boy, oh boy, that's hard to put to words. Yeah. Incredibly high expectations. Yep. Expected you to work well into the evening. Yeah. Hence your Um, love of coffee. And did, and did many, many nights. Yeah. Expected to be able to call you and talk about an idea at two or three in the morning. (laughs) Yeah. Lots of people have said that. Yeah. And then 
Eric Cotton later on, Eric was a champ at that. Eric would call me uh, when I got to know him, two, three, four in the morning and stay on the phone for an hour and a half. Wow. Oh yeah, that was that was Eric. Eric was a champ at that. It's like Eric. It's like Eric didn't understand clocks. <laughs> I used to get Elizabeth about that, but Eric didn't understand clocks. He time, but not clocks. Oh, he didn't care what time it was. The time time didn't matter to him. Wow, that's incredible. Time never mattered. I mean, it just never mattered to him. He had other things to talk about. Yeah, and I was more than happy to talk with him too. And presumably, so you dropped everything, moved to be in his mentorship, and uh, you had his sole focus. Well, not his sole focus. Obviously, he had a lot going on, but you were his only student for a year. So you got to know him very well. Yes. Yeah. Ogden was always a bit fascinated with my seminary training. He was very interested in religion. He wasn't. He wasn't a believer, but he was interested in all sorts of religions and the religious experience fascinated him. So when I became his student, he asked me if it would be okay if he called me Brother Patrick. <laughs> and Brother Patrick became my name until he died. And it was always what he called me. And it was in reference to my religious training. Oh, now I think that is how Scott Bourne referred to you. And I wasn't sure what he was saying. So I got a message from him today. And he wrote back Brother Patrick. So I, I wasn't, I Brother thought Patrick. he was just saying that as a term of endearment, but that is why. So you became known as that. It, it might be. Well, I, and that's what Ogden always called me. Yeah. And then uh, what happened is I wanted to work with the kids with the more severe impairments. Yeah. That was my interest. Yeah. But that was not where precision teaching was. Right. Accepting a little bit of the work of B. Barrett and Carl Binder early on, accepting their work. Most of the work that I encountered with precision teaching was all in academics or pre-academic skills. And that was not where I wanted to be. Yeah. And so I did a little bit of work in that area, but I always went back to where home for me was. And home for me was the severe kids. That's where home for me was. That passion came from. I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. I, I, how do you explain to somebody something you fall in love with? Yeah. I mean, how do you explain that? I don't know. And then as I got better at doing it, at least I thought it was, then it was a matter of, uh, this is a good place for me to be. Yeah. Not only does it have my interests, but I think I'm getting pretty good at it. And so. And it's something that not a lot of people know how to do well. That's right. Yeah. And I, I thought to myself, you know, if I, if I got even better at this, I'll bet you I could make a living. And I sure as hell did. Yeah. What happened when you finished your PhD? Where did you go next? Well, I didn't finish it for about three years. It took me that long to get the dissertation done and all the research because I picked a topic where you had to collect a lot of data. And then I moved to Seattle. So I was teaching in the Seattle area. So I was a long way from Kansas. So it was almost, it was pretty close to five years. And then I finished the dissertation. And then I stayed in the classroom for a little while. I stayed with my kids. Yeah. 
And then, and eventually I moved to a university position that was mostly teacher training, but not in classrooms on the road. I traveled around the state of Missouri and would teach teachers in a whole variety of different settings how to teach kids with severe impairments. Yeah, right. And that's where Zoom kicked me out of the podcast recording. I'm sorry for the abrupt stop, but we rejoined Patrick in part two of All In with Patrick McGreevy, where he takes up talking about Abigail Corkin's book on Ogdensley due to come out in November and launch at the IPTC. There's an interesting story, because I neglected to mention somebody who became a graduate student with Og uh, at the time that I was. Yeah. And that's Henry Sokolov. Henry is a lady. Yeah. um, This is a big coincidence because today I got a message from Scott saying there's somebody you really need to track down. And I asked Bob if he knew her and he said, I don't know her. And that is Henry. And he says, he tells me the story of her and he attached a big teaching manual that she wrote. And... He said, take a look at this. She implemented and wrote this whole project by herself. And how is that? I've never heard her name before until now. So, so tell me about her. She became a student of Ogden's. I'm not sure she was ever a full-time student of his. She was part-time. Yeah. But um, Og used to take us on the road and do trainings. And sometimes he would take Henry and I. And Wait, this goes back a long time. Yeah. I believe Henry's actual first name is Harriet. Right. If I remember that right. But everybody called her Henry. Right. She she dated Carl Koenig for a long time. Right. Yeah. Did you see Carl? He lives in New York. Doesn't he live in New York, in Florida? Carl Koenig lives in Sarasota, yes. In Sarasota, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why? He didn't mention that. He didn't mention that when I interviewed him. <laughs> well, this goes back. Yeah, this ways. goes back. Yeah. And um, anyway, there's a story that I was going to tell you. It, yeah. it kind of talks about Ogden. We were at the Chase Park Plaza Hotel in St. Louis, which is an old traditional American hotel. Yeah. That there used to be these in famous, the bigger cities around the United States and was a very traditional, old, stately kind of hotel. And in St. Louis at that point in time, in 1973, this the Chase Park Plaza was one of those stately old hotels. Yeah. In, that, in those days, it was called the an NSAC, the National Society for Autistic Children. Uh-huh. That's what it was called in those days before ASA, Autism Society of America. Anyway, so... Ogden was booked to do the keynote for that national conference at the Chase Park Plaza Hotel. Right. Well, it turned out that the keynote was all day. It was a six-hour workshop. Right. And that was the keynote. So Og talked him into that. Well, we we getting there early in the morning, about eight or so, and we're getting everything. We got our overhead projectors, and we got screens going every which direction, and the whole stage is full of stuff. Nog gets sorting stuff out, and Henry and I are sorting things out. And he doesn't tell us anything. He just 
he just, what he does in a workshop, he starts doing, and then he'll, he'll say, Henry, can you talk about this? Patrick, can you talk about this? Which we would do all very spontaneously. Yeah. Because we all knew the content pretty well. Well, he gets introduced. He stands, gets up on the stage. He introduces Henry and I. And then he says, now Henry and Pat and Brother Patrick are going to describe to you precision teaching. And he walked off the front of the stage and walked right out the back of the room and never came back. Six hours later, this is a funny story. Six hours later. Yeah. And when the workshop was over, Henry and I had done the whole thing. Lunch break and everything. We had done the whole thing. Yeah. And wondered where the hell Ogden was. But he wasn't anywhere to be found. So at the end, Henry and I decided we needed a glass of wine or a beer afterwards. So we wandered back to the bar was right up at the front of the hotel when you came in. That was a little pub. Yeah. We walk in there and there's there's Ogden. (laughs) And Ogden is sitting with Carol O'Connor. Right. Carol O'Connor was the guy that played Archie Bunker on television. Oh, my goodness. And he's sitting there, and Carol O'Connor is smoking a great, big, huge cigar. And he's talking with Og. Wow. And you run the whole... And we had, and Henry and I had done the whole darn thing ourselves. He walked right off the front of the stage, never came back. <laughs> never came back. The first and and then we were so talking. So yeah. then he grabs the two of us yeah. like this, pretty much grabbed around us so that He's got one arm around me and one arm around Henry, and he pulls us close together so all of our faces are very close together. And he gets a little tear in his eye, and he said, you don't think I would have walked off that stage if the content weren't in good hands, do you? Mm-hmm. That was that was what he told us that day. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's kind of an interesting... But, you see, that's what he did. He trained people to do what he did. Yeah. That's what he did. And there wasn't any, you know, you were either all in as his student or you weren't. Yeah. You were either all in or you weren't. And you you just knew that when you were Ogden's student, the only option was all in. Yeah. He was going to train you to do what he did. Yeah, and, and isn't that incredible? Because look who he trained. Look who he left behind. Oh, my God, yeah. yes. The most magnificent teachers and... Clay Starlin, Carl Binder. Yeah. Oh, Elizabeth Hart, Eric. Oh, my goodness. It's just, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Ann Starlin, and there was, and there's been some people along the way that, that passed on and... and Nancy Johnson and Diana Dean, and those are names from the early days. Yeah. And Kent and Kent Johnson and John Eshelman and Julie Vargas and John Cooper and Steve Graff. Yeah. Richard McManus, Chuck Murbitz, Scott Bourne. I mean, it it goes on. And those are all people who are all in. Yeah. And, and lots of those are still all in. Absolutely. Hasn't changed. All in. <laughs> yeah. you know? 
Yeah, that's a wonderful story. And I'm just trying to remember who told me exactly the same story about a conference I went to. It might have been either Clay or Carl and um, the same thing. <laughs> and they just come off on the stage and present. Incredible. What a, that's, how, that's how confident he was in, in his teaching, his own teaching and the people around him. So what was your next steps after that? Here, presumably through your studies and all of your work in precision teaching, that's where you got to know these extraordinary individuals. You mentioned there that Eric would call you in the middle of the night. How did you first meet Eric? Through Og? Yes. Yeah. And was was he coming and down then, to Is that where you met him? Oh, I, I can hardly even remember where I met him. Yeah. It, it, but Carl Koenig and Harold Kunzelman had a consulting firm. Yes. And we went and did some consult consults for them. And there were three of us at a time. It was Eric and Clay and myself. Right. And that's where I really got to know Eric. Yeah. Was in those consults. Boy, that was one of the most memorable times of my life because Eric was just, and boy, if Ogden blew me away, Eric did as well. I mean, he just had, he was so insightful. He just knew stuff. He just had ways of looking at things that I had never experienced before. Yeah. So he was, he was just, he was just amazing. And then, um, but then over a period of time, what happened is that I wrote that little book, Teaching and Learning in Plain English, which was just a yeah. little primer in how to do precision teaching. I have it right here. This is my favorite book. How, I'm going to, how to start in it. Is and, it still um, Patrick, do they still publish that book? You, you can still get it. I gave the publication rights over to, to Behavior Development Solutions, Steve yeah. Eversall, okay. and they, they, they still sell it. Their bookstore has been bought out by that BALC group, right. Behavior Analysis. And so it, I don't even know right now where you can get it, but I suspect you can get it from them. Okay. I will track it down and put a link because I it's my favorite you can book. get it from them. But, um, in the audience, so it's just learning to chart. This is the easiest yeah. book of all of them to learn how to chart. And, and Patrick has always been an advocate for plain English, and you will not... Well, Ogden was Ogden was too. Yeah, he was very much into plain language, and he he was he wrote an article for the Journal of Precision Teaching, which I started a few years after that, and uh, it was "Say Reward, Relief, Penalty, and Punishment." That was the title of the article. So, I mean, he called negative reinforcement relief. Yeah. Reward, relief penalty and punishment and and a punishment that was a takeaway was a penalty and a punishment that was a given was was a punishment but if you took a preferred item from somebody that was a penalty yeah yeah they're terms that people can understand and yeah they can understand and uh but then what i did is i started i went back to the kids that i always wanted to be with yeah and not and not a lot of precision teaching people were doing that yeah and so over a period of years i stayed active in the field but whenever i would go to a pt conference most of the people were working with other kinds of other kids than i was working with so 
our interest didn't jive. And I kept hoping that more people would come to precision teaching conferences where their data were on the lower half of the chart. Yes. But they seldom did. They seldom did. Yeah. And they didn't. And everybody became, I remember one time I went to a conference and uh, I was doing a presentation and it was on teaching kids daily living skills, lower half of the chart. And there was a, I won't name who the person was, but it was a person that was, had come along later in the field and was very dynamic and taught lots of workshops. And he had like 80 to 100 people in his session because he was talking about reading. I had three people in my session. Yeah. Yeah. And two of them were just old friends. (laughs) And, And the other one was a person who was like me who worked with uh, people with pretty severe impairments. Yeah. And so, so my work didn't catch a lot of attention at the conferences. That was disappointing still, to me. One of your analogies from your Essential for Living, and we'll get onto that, is it's something that's hard to do. Is that fair to say? What's that? that working with kids with high needs and challenging behaviors, it's, it's harder to do in many regards. I think in terms of the teaching behaviors that it requires, I think yeah. you have to be more precise about how you do things. Yeah. Uh, and you have to, um, in so many ways, first off, you have to decide what to teach. And that's real important. Because, and then you have to decide the context in which to teach it, because a lot of kids with more severe disabilities don't experience generalization like the rest of us do. Yeah. So you've got to teach it. You've got to teach the right skills, the skills that matter. You've got to teach them into context. You see, and then you have to teach them the fluency. Yeah. And then you have to have the teaching procedures to get you there. And prompting and prompt fading with our kids is much more difficult. Go ahead. Yeah. And dearly, you want parents to be part of the environment, right? So they, yeah, generalize at home. And then an interesting issue for us became. Fluency. Yeah. We were always committed to fluency and we were never willing to leave that behind. And that was that was Eric's life. Eric was about he, Eric was Dr. Fluency. He absolutely was. It, yeah. it was it he impressed me so much with the value of fluency. So how would you because most of what the precision teaching folks were doing is they were measuring fluent responding by using frequency and doing it in short time intervals, like 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, that kind of thing. And you essentially repeated members of the same response class over for that period of time. But the problem was that with the children that I was working with, you couldn't easily do that. Like, let's say that I'm teaching, one of my classic examples is, I remember it was a young lady named Sarah, and I was teaching Sarah to come here when her name was called, because we'd be out in groups in public, and she'd just wander off in the shopping mall, and then I'd say, Sarah, come here, and she'd just keep going. Yeah. So we decided that we had to teach her how to respond to us when her name was called. So how would we measure that fluid? The fluency, how would we know when she's fluent at that skill? So, I mean, could we do, uh, Sarah, come here. Oh, that's good. Okay, go over there and do that again. Here we go. Sarah, come here and repeat it over and over again for a minute. Uh-uh. 
Yeah. That's that's not at all what it the way it would look later. Yeah. So what we what we did was something that Ogden always advised us against. But when we started doing this, this will be hard for me to say. Ogden wasn't here anymore to guide us. Yeah. Sorry, that's hard for me to say. I remember because he wrote about it. He said he didn't want people to measure fluency with latency and duration. How long it took you to begin to make the movement and how long it took you to complete it. But we didn't we didn't have any other option. Yeah. We didn't see there was another option. And so we did it. But we it was easy to find back in Ogden's writing. In fact, it's in the book Skinner on Measurement. He talked about not doing that. Yeah. But we didn't know any other way. We couldn't figure out any other way. So that's the way we've done it. And that's what you've always done? That's what we've always done in the last 20 years. Yeah. And so like hand washing and all of those skills that have a start and end, you measure duration. Yeah. And then I guess obviously you can teach the component skills or the the other skills. You could you could, you could teach the components to fluency and yeah. then you could do those in short timings. Yes, you could. Yeah. I I I wish I'd reached out to you earlier because we do in my program too, we do a lot of that type of work, like teaching kids to come into the clinic and unpack their bag and put their lunch away. And it makes no sense to do that over and over again, you know. It makes no sense. You can teach the component skills and and address the behaviour and, yeah, and get them really fluent. But what you're looking for is fluency and being able to do that without any interruption or stopping or not getting stopped. And so, yeah, it's a, I know what you're saying. It makes no sense to do that over and over. Or like kids learning to give their iPad back when a timer goes off, you know, it makes no sense because the, the stimulus control is all wrong. If you do that over and over, set the timer, give the iPad back, set the timer, give the iPad back, you know. That's right. That's right. It's just not contextual. It doesn't sound that even when we have tried those things, it hasn't generalised. So, yeah, I completely understand what you're saying. And so I'm assuming, Patrick, though, because I don't know how you end up using where you started to teach those skills. Did you start your own program and start recruiting and training your own teams? Did you create your own right? Yes. Yeah. Well, well, we were already doing it before we published Essential for Living, but we've been doing it for eight or ten years before that. Yeah. Because it just we, who was that? When anybody you, I was anybody I was working with. Yeah. And would because I was consulting with lots of school districts, and yeah. So I would always teach them that don't quit teaching a skill until it can happen. We used to just say in plain language, without hesitation. Yeah. And with, without hesitation meant from the time you were asked to do it or the circumstance in which you should do it until you time to com- until the time you complete doing it should be as brief as you can move. Yeah. And, and if you do that consistently on the first opportunity of the day, so there's no warm-up or practice, we used to even call those cold probes. Carbone and I called those cold probes. Yeah. Just for the sake. So, and and when you did it like that, first opportunity of the day, several days in a row, no hesitation, then we would call that response fluent. Okay. And would you reinforce 
if you like personal bests or improve performance across time for those skills? Yes. Yeah. And because, so because, because, because there would be there would be two things that we would be looking at each time the response, it's like sometimes it was just a single response. Yeah. What we would end up recording is the latency plus the duration. So if I say, Sarah, come here, from the time, the end of the word come here, the end of the word here, until the time she's standing next to us, which is, is latency plus duration, that got recorded on the chart. Okay. And would you, if there was prompting required, would you record that and also put it on then, the chart? Yes. Okay. Yes. If we had that much time, if it was prompted, we might make an X. And if it was unprompted, we might do a dot. Yeah. And did you use different types of prompting and record that differently? Or it was a prompt or it was independent and that was that was it? Well, generally speaking, the kind of prompt, we would stay with a kind of prompt. The only way we change the prompt is if it wasn't effective. So, yeah. but but the amount of prompt, no, that didn't get that. Yeah. Just what that ended up in our notes. Yeah, that's that's been a yeah. I've spent a lot of time thanks to Jonathan, Amy, just recording like graduated guidance as the prompt level. You know, when you're teaching self care, it's like the minimum amount of help that's necessary to have a learner complete a skill. And if you call that the slice, if you like, like we're teaching with graduated guidance and then, you know, you can fade that level of prompt in another slice. That's another way that we've learned to do it. But I would do anything to come and spend more time with you to learn about that because I'm like you, I love that teaching. I have seen it done in lots of different ways and the chart adds a whole new element because it makes you attend to the behaviour. So this might be a really good time to bounce back a little bit. I'm sorry I'm jumping all over the shop, but you said you, you put in your notes here that your first class with OG, you talked about percent correct. And this is where a lot of people that are teaching skills that you have advocated for, for your whole life might still be using percent correct for those types of skills. And, and you're talking here about latency. So it's a, a very different measurement system. Do you want to talk a little bit about your first class with OG and how we talked about the percent? Sure. We just published just a few weeks ago, it came out our new teaching, our essential for living teaching manual, which goes with the handbook. Yes. And we have a, and we, the reason I mentioned that is we have a box. We call it the big red percent box. Yes. And it's a table in the middle of the book. <laughs> and it describes, and it's, it's got a great big red border around it. Yeah. In the middle of the page. And it describes what people don't understand about percent that percent isn't really a response measure at all. It never was, but most people don't understand it. When in Og's first class, the first class I ever what, sat down in class with him was on percent. Yeah. And he talked all about it. And then he sent us home that day with the assignment to come back and provide a plain English definition of percent. And he said that if you did it really, really well, the best one that came back would probably get an A. And there were about, what, 11, 10, 11 people in the class. Some of these were people taking this class as an elective. Only three of the students were his full-time doctoral students. So there was eight other people taking it as an elective. Well, anyway, 
I went home and went nuts for two days and decided that I had to be the one who got the best definition of percent because <laughs> he was my new professor and yeah, this this was my chance to shine. So I stayed up a couple of nights and was barely coherent when I attended the next <laughs> class because I was so tired. But he asked me to stand up and do it, and I did it, and I got the A. Wow! And, and, and a big hug, and a big and a big hug it. from him after class. Yeah. yeah. He said, "Brother Patrick nailed it. He got every component, every piece." And I was so proud of that. And, and, and the thing that people don't realize is that it isn't a measure of anything. It's, it's a measure of the relationship of two measures. Yeah. Two measures that are judged light, largely by form, correct, incorrect, appropriate, inappropriate. So it's how those two are related without measuring at all the extent of which either one happened. And that's what percent is. It's the number that might have occurred had there been 100 responses totally or had there been 100 opportunities to respond and you wouldn't know which of the two it was unless somebody told you. You'd have to ask which of the two that was. But there were almost never 100 responses and there was almost never 100 opportunities to respond. So why are we measuring the relationship of two things without measuring the extent of occurrence of either one. Even to someone that doesn't know anything about precision teaching, it's a very obvious, easy to understand concept, and yet most of behaviour analysis hasn't seen that. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we've lost those important underpinnings and that Skinner's... Right I, I was I was part of a symposium years ago that I put together with Don Bear. So it was done. We did it at Ohio State in a conference. In, oh God, I want to say about 1982-83. People who had been students or were students of Don Bear's and Og and Don were part of the symposium. And I still remember the title of Don Bear's presentation. And it was on the less use of frequency, what he called rate, on the less frequent use of rate as a response measure. Right. So he was he was advocating percent and not rate or not frequency. That was his, and of course, Og was the other way around. What was the rationale? I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I think that most people thought that the accuracy issue was the main issue, which you, could, yeah. which you could get an estimate with percent, that that was the accuracy. Now, they were, and of course, they were not into standard measurement, and they resisted that. Og's first article that he submitted to the brand new first edition of Java was rejected. Yeah. That became the book Skinner on Measurement. That was the article that didn't get accepted. And here's some irony for you. I submitted an article to Java last year, which was essentially a history of standard measurement and why we ought to begin to pay more attention to it and why we got misguided by not paying attention to it. Yeah. And guess what happened? The reviewer 
was the same reviewer, the same individual that had rejected Ogden's article years ago. Wow. Imagine that. That's 50 years. It's the same person who rejected his article in 1968, rejected mine. Wow. Ready for this? Ready? Rejected mine in 2020. Same person. Is there some irony in that or not? Same human being, same individual. What are the chances? Yeah. And, And soundly rejected it. So I know I normally ask people this at the end, but we haven't finished at all yet. But you know, do you remain hopeful for a world of standard measurement that that there are young people coming up that are finding their way to the precision teaching community? What's your hope for the field? What I get most out of in the precision teaching conferences now is the enthusiasm of the young people and the hope for because our science is in the balance yeah if we don't accept standard measurement at some point nobody will think of us as a science because that's the acid test either you have a standard frame of reference or you're not a science and do you have you you you, physics couldn't have been built on percent yeah so we so we just go back into the realm of the social quote sciences, like sociology, which aren't really sciences at all. That's where we go if we don't begin. And and I think the only hope of getting more and more comes from the PT community. That's the only hope. What you just said that you um, have some views in terms of destandardization of the chart. Oh, for sure. And I'll, I'll tell you about in a second, but I, it, just as we were talking, I thought of something. I just submitted a, a paper on this very topic to the Florida Association for Behavior Analysis. And I just got the rejection last night. Wow. They're not interested. And, and, and it was the barriers, it was about, title was, the barriers to behavior analysis becoming the natural science of human behavior. But if it if it doesn't accept standard measurement, it can't become that. And of course the reviewers rejected it. They did they don't want they don't want to hear anything like that. You know, it requires someone to admit that what they've been doing all these years could have been done better. Is that fair to say? Oh for sure. That's, That's a big that that takes someone, you know, who's been in their career a long time to admit that they could have been doing this earlier. That's a that's a big thing for someone to take on, right? Well, and it affects a lot of scientists. It, uh, it has. I mean, uh, there are even very accomplished scientists later in their career that weren't willing to acknowledge their own errors. Yeah. I think that's a human frailty that we all suffer from. You see, we, I don't know, it, it's so much tied up in, we don't want to think that our behavior in some ways is, is amenable to science. We don't. We want to think about the mystical aspects of things. That's more interesting. I mean, you know, it's amazing. Even simple examples, behavior analysts will say things like, here's, an, here's a simple example. 
yeah. counting. If you don't believe in private events, if you don't go down Abigail's road of actually counting them and charging them, if that is of no interest, then you are what many people would call a methodological behaviorist. You're not a radical behaviorist at all. You're certainly not like Skinner, and you're certainly not like Ogden or Eric or any of those people. Okay? You're more like Don Bear, frankly. You are. And Wolf and Risley, too. Same. Okay, if you don't accept that, knowing that it's hard to get agreement on private events, but understanding that, but if you don't even accept that at all, how do you explain counting? More specifically, how do you explain me going across the room after somebody asked me to get seven spoons? How do you explain that without a private event? How do I remember that it's seven? How do I remember when I get there that it's spoons, not forks? Yeah. The only way you, you really can do that is you have to mediate your own listening behavior. Yeah. You have to say to yourself, seven on the way over to where the spoons are. If you can't do that, that's a private event. Yeah. How can you disavow that kind of thing when it's a fundamental example that all of us do every day? How many times have you and I walked in somewhere and can't remember why we're in the room? So many. Of course. And for me, I used to say this to us at Putin's, for you, it'll occur once a, once a week or two. For me, it occurs four or five times a day. That's what aging does to you. you see? <laughs> so you walk in the room, you say, what the hell? Where'd I come here for? Oh, well, if, then I have to go back and put, but if I had said stapler, stapler, stapler to myself, when I got to the office, why did I came here? Stapler. Huh? Because I mediated a listener response. First off, I had to repeat it as a self-echoic or if you, whatever you call it, a self-echoic, but nobody else can hear. Thing. Yeah. There's so many examples of simple reasons why we should be more behavioral, but we're not. And they're not like out of the way, strange examples. They're stuff that's common, ordinary, everyday experience. It's right in front of us. And we look away. No, no. Yeah. We look away. We look away like it's not there. When there's, there's almost no reason to even suspect that it isn't there. It is there. It's almost got to be. It's almost got to be. Yeah. So that's, you know, it, there's so many things, but I think we have to have measurement. So that's where we leave Brother Pat, but not for long. In part two, we jump into more stories with him, starting with his contribution to a book about Ogden R. Lindsley, edited by Abigail Corkin, due to release at the International Precision Teaching Conference in November this year. Thanks for listening to the ABA and PT podcast. You'll find links to Brother Pat's resources in the show notes and you can follow us on the ABA and PT Facebook page. We also have a Facebook group, the ABA and PT podcast group, where I share resources shared by our guests.